Welcome to Stand Up Citizen, Episode 6, Exploring the Founders' Approach to the Design of the Country and How They Expected That We Should Behave as Citizens. Well, my friend Neil confirmed that the idea of civic virtue is a thread that runs through the first five episodes of Stand Up Citizen. But now we need to get a true read on the important idea of civic or public virtue. Remember, this project is to consult the influences on our founders in creating our republic so that we may learn their design and inform ourselves. Civic virtue may sound like an old-fashioned idea, but I hope you'll agree it needs to be current, alive, and to inspire us. James Madison told us about what a representative's role should be. To refine and enlarge public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens whose wisdom may best discern the true interests of their country and whose patriotism and love of justice will be least likely to sacrifice it to temporary or partial considerations. That's from the Federalist Papers. John Adams, perhaps our wisest founder, wrote that virtue is the cornerstone of a constitutional system and of a just society. Human nature being what it is, we have to be alert to, quote, vanity, avarice, that will corrupt, unquote, and that virtue is the guidepost and standard meant to make important distinctions in rendering political judgments. That's true for both citizens and public officials. Adams, who believed in limited government, actually believed government should provide education to all the people so that citizens would learn how to be good citizens and to exercise civic virtue. As he said it, quote, the elevation of the common spirit to public virtue, unquote. All of the founders were very much influenced by Baron Montesquieu's book, The Spirit of the Laws. In that book, Montesquieu surveyed all forms of government in history that were known at the time, and he made three general observations. One, in a despotism or tyranny, the cultivation of fear was important. In a monarchy, the cultivation of honor was important. And in the republic, the cultivation of virtue was important. So Montesquieu, who Hamilton and Madison and others read so avidly, named virtue as vital to a republic if it would avoid failure. While looking for an illustration of this principle, it may be useful to consider Edmund Randolph. Edmund Randolph was Thomas Jefferson's cousin and Washington's first attorney general. 
Randolph's statement in the preamble of what was called the Committee of Detail at the Constitutional Convention is often cited on the approach to drafting the actual Constitution. The Committee of Detail was the committee of founders assigned by Washington to draft the actual Constitution. So here's what Randolph wrote. Two things deserve attention. First, to insert essential principles only, lest the operations of government should be clogged by making those provisions permanent and unalterable, which ought to be accommodated to future times and events. And two, to use simple and precise language and general propositions, according to the example of the constitutions of the several states. In other words, take note that the future will be different and allow the language to accommodate future needs. Randolph believed that this was possible versus writing down every possibility and a solution for it because he relied upon the good faith and civic virtue in the public men who would become the stewards of the republic and that they would develop and adhere to norms which were consistent with founding principles. According to the authors of the book, How Democracies Die, quote, all successful democracies rely on informal rules, which while not found in any laws or the constitution are widely known, followed and respected, unquote. It has been vital to America's success and some say appear to be under threat right now. Think only of the Merrick Garland nomination saga. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle in his politics viewed citizenship as consisting not of political rights, but rather of political duties. Citizens were expected to put their private lives and interests aside and serve the state for the greater good in accordance with duties defined by law. So civic virtue simply means acting in the best interests of the community, even if it does not serve the citizen's own individual interest. You may remember this was echoed in John F. Kennedy's inaugural address. Quote, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. It was a privilege and honor to serve as a public official in the ancient republics. The republics were built that were built on the model of Roman Greece. People in principle served as an expression of civic virtue, not as a source of wealth building. When that occurred, it was condemned and often punished, sometimes by banishment. One source of the Constitution's emoluments clause, putting people's personal interests above those of country. During the Renaissance, in the great and commercially successful cities, especially in the republics of Florence and Venice, 
citizens were expected to serve in government. Important aspects of civic virtue constituted civic conversation, civic engagement, so that one would remain informed and could reach agreement or make a contribution and engage in civilized and civilizing behavior. Edward Gibbon, the famous author of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which was published the same year as the Declaration of Independence, wrote that the Roman Empire had succumbed to barbarian invasions in large part due to the gradual loss of civic virtue among its citizens. It made them weak, outsourcing the defense of the empire to barbarian mercenaries who did not, after all, share Roman culture and values. Rome was a republic for hundreds of years until it was overthrown and the empire was established. Near the later years of the Western Empire, barbarians such as Goths were used as mercenaries and eventually constituted a large bulk of the uh, Roman military force, something all of the founders read uh, among their assigned readings at their various schools is, quote, virtue is the fount whence honor springs. That's Christopher Marlowe, a contemporary of Shakespeare, and who probably, it turns out, co coordinated and cooperated with Shakespeare in writing some of his Shakespeare's history plays. But what it means is that virtue and honor are very closely tied. Concerns over private and public perceptions of character held great value in the 18th century. Think only of the duel between Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Burr was running for governor of New York. Hamilton opposed Burr. I see the in every situation. And he defamed Burr's character in the press. Burr mortally wounded Hamilton in the duel that ensued. Hamilton died the next day, aged 47, much too early for one of our most important founders. Edmund Burke, another contemporary of our founders, offered standards of political excellence, which constitute a roster of characteristics for public virtue. Quote, to be taught and to exercise self-respect. To attract the attention and interests of the wise and learned from whatever political persuasion. To have the judgment and capacity to command and to obey. To be temperate and show honorable conduct that you act as a reconciler of man against man in questions of principle. Burke believed it was the responsibility of a representative to exercise mature judgment, not simply to carry out the wishes of their constituents in order to do what was right for the whole country. I was impressed with George W. Bush's eulogy at the John McCain Memorial Service on public virtues. Paraphrased, John was, according to President Bush, 
Above all, a man with a code. He lived by a set of public virtues that brought strength and purpose to his life and to his country. Remember that faction was one of the important issues the Constitution's design was meant to control. Because of the existence and inevitability of faction, remember, faction is sown into the nature of man from Federalist 10. In a free society, public officials need to conduct themselves in the spirit of civic virtue. After all, Hamilton said, men are ambitious, vindictive, and rapacious. That's Federalist 6. If they didn't behave with a modicum of virtue, the country could succumb to the passions of the mob, as it happened many times in history. So has anything changed? Is not the nature of man the same as in 1787? The only change is the range of tools available to those who would take advantage. Think of social media misinformation. We'll take up the bad faith aspects of this in a later episode. Uh, Still not clear? For students of history and the founders, Cincinnatus was the paradigm a paragon of civic virtue. Cincinnatus was a Roman general who had retired to his farm. Rome was threatened by a serious military threat. Officials were sent out to his farm. They found him plowing his field. The officials begged him to come and help. He dropped his plow, immediately left, led the war, that was successfully um, concluded in Rome's favor. At the end, the grateful citizens of the Roman Senate offered Cincinnatus great rewards and titles. And he said, I'm just going home and take care of my farm. I've done my job. You can probably see why the Society of Cincinnati was named for him. Uh, and Washington was our Cincinnatus. And probably for that reason, our most revered member of the founding generation. If you visit Concord, Massachusetts, and you visit the Old North Bridge, you'll see the Minuteman statue, which is farmer with a rifle in his hand and his plow next to him, ready to drop his plow at a moment's notice. He's the man who defers tending to his own well-being and thereby puts it at risk for the greater good. These are the symbols and signs of what is expected of the virtuous citizen. More currently, David Brooks, one of our finest commentators, has written that the first citizens of this country believed in public spiritedness a system of habits and attitudes that would check egotism and self-indulgence. Public assertiveness meant curbing one's own passions and moderating one's own opinion in order to achieve a larger consensus. So instead of overt self-expression, it meant self-restraint, embodied in the person of George Washington. Now, 
Thinking of the impact of this, uh, the pardon power is a good example. It was pointed out by Hamilton in Federalist Paper 74. The power of the pardon is technically very far-reaching, he wrote. And a president without scruples or self-restraint could actually end up shielding government officials against proper judicial action. So a large dose of civic virtue would inhibit action that could actually subvert the judiciary for personal gain. And looking back at the convention, remember that George Washington spoke very rarely at the Constitutional Convention. He was very much aware that the impact of his views in open debate might constitute a check on what people might speak openly. So he didn't say anything, even if he disagreed with speakers or with outcomes of debate. Recall also Michael Gerson, the Washington Post writer. Even when fellow citizens are badly mistaken, their dignity requires respect for their freedom and conscience. Now compare that to our rancor today. When Alexis de Tocqueville, the Frenchman, visited the United States, in 1835, he wrote his Democracy in America, and his observations were offered 50 years after the Constitution had been written. He wrote about what he called habits of the heart. What makes the Constitution is not the laws themselves, but the shared beliefs of a people in their common cause. A confidence or belief in a shared mission that existed all over the U.S., in his opinion, in 1835. Do you think that's still true today? Judge Learned Hand, in the 1940s, wrote, The spirit of liberty is the spirit which seeks to understand the minds of other men and women and which weighs their interests alongside its, its own without bias. That was written in May 1944, when freedom was under serious threat and there was a massive exertion of effort all over the world to preserve it. And finally, that wise rascal Tom Paine, quote, when we are planning for posterity, we ought to remember that virtue is not hereditary. In other words, it has to be taught to every new generation the poor man retains the prejudices of his forefathers without their faith and their ignorance without their virtue. The poor man adopts the rule of self-interest as the rule of his actions without understanding the political science behind it all. That's what happens if we don't teach every new generation. General Eisenhower wrote, a people that values its privileges above its principles, soon loses both. Eisenhower experienced firsthand the devastation of tyranny. If you want to get a sense for what the result could be of the eclipse of civic virtue, read Robert Jackson's opening statement at the Nuremberg trials. So we seem to be missing an essential element in our political discourse. And in governing our republic, civic virtue, which the founders regarded as crucial to the success of their edifices in short supply, 
the notion that people should set aside their personal interests in favor of the nation's interest is foundational to our republic. Just think of my father's generation, the World War II generation, who put their lives on hold and actually went out and saved the world. There's an example for us to follow. So what do we have now? Politicos who use bad faith assertions to misinform voters and pursue their own agenda, and by doing so erode the fabric of our republic. Parties staking out ideological positions with apparently little regard for the damage to the nation. Is this patriotic? Media types whose career aspirations impede them from effectively exerting their vital role. And we citizens who do not do the necessary work to inform ourselves to act when needed. We must restore civic and public virtue to the place our founders intended. We must demand it from our political class, our press, and ourselves. We must dismantle or abolish laws, rules, institutions that impede the operation of virtue. Recall our country's past achievements. Compare that to our current cast of characters. We should ask, are they worthy of their offices and of the legacy over which they preside? And are we? So after all this, you may still think civic virtue is old-fashioned, a relic of our past. But at least now you can make an informed decision. If you like this podcast, share it with friends. Thanks for listening.